Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands. People that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. All right, today's episode of the A-Game Podcast is brought to you by Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Naked Warrior Recovery CBD is an all-natural, it will not get you high, strictly CBD product that can help you with anxiety, sleep, appetite, inflammation, all those aches and pains you've been feeling for years and you can't figure out how to get rid of them. This is a natural way to figure out if you can get some topicals to put on your neck or wherever the sore spot is, ingest them with gummies. Uh, There's gel tabs, there's pills. Um, Now there's extra stuff on that site as well that you can find from things to help you sleep, things to help give you energy. There's clothes, there's all kinds of different things. It is growing every single day. It is a top of the line Navy SEAL owned company owned by my buddy William Brandon out of Hawaii, making a quality product out there. If you have tried CBD in the past and you have not tried it consistently, or you've taken that gas station crap, you need to give it another try and give it a solid 30 to 60 days to really take it every day. And all of a sudden you will see you're sleeping better, you're eating better, you feel better. A lot of those aches and pains and joint stuff from grappling or boxing or lifting weights for years and years or all that that pain on your knees from running and running and running, whatever it may be, you're going to find this really starts to help. So do some research on it and you're going to see that a quality product makes a long, long, long uh, separation between the crap that's out there and the crap that works. That's the crap, the stuff that actually works. Sorry about that. So go in there and check it out. If you want 20% off of your first order of, or any order for that matter, of uh, Naked War Recovery CBD, go to nicknicknick.com slash links. On there under affiliates, you will see get 20% off by clicking on that. It will bring you to the website. You can pick whatever you want and put in promo code AGAME at checkout to get 20% off anything you order from the Naked Warrior Recovery CBD website. Support a good cause, support a good guy, and support your body with Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Also, if you are looking to get involved in real estate, whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or an expert just looking to have somebody else give you some fresh deals, some fresh perspectives. If you're looking to get into rentals, uh, cash flowing properties, if you want to get into commercial deals, multifamily, fix and flips, whatever it may be, new, intermediate, expert, reach out to me on any of my social media or email me at nick at nicknicknick.com or jump on uh, nicknicknick.com slash links. And uh, you'll see all the different ways to connect to us on that website as well as check out our free book, How to Change uh, Your Real Estate Business According to What the Market Has Shifted for the Coronavirus. So check that out on there as well. Uh, go on there, look around, reach out however you want. If you want to buy properties from us, sell properties to us. If you have some good deals that you want to put the legwork in, bring us a deal. We pay you a good chunk for it or partner in some way, shape or form. There's so many different ways we can put this together. Just jump on and get started. If you don't even know where to start, let's get that conversation going and see where you fit in and we'll find a way to make it happen and get 2021 off and running. Today's guest is my buddy, Grant Kemp. He is a creative cash flow genius. He understands systems. He's helped me out a lot with my systems. I think you guys are going to get a lot out of this. Super intelligent guy, very articulate, uh, very, very generous with his time. He has been more than patient and, and courteous and generous with me. I know he's very busy. He's got a lot of stuff going on, but he took the time to do a very long podcast with me and he's given me his personal time before with no expectation to help me out with my business and my systems. And that goes a long way. So great guy. Check him out. Follow him on social media. Check out his business and definitely uh, give this podcast a listen because he's doing some really cool stuff. And I think he's going to be one of those guys in the near future that's just taking over not only the real estate investing, but the real estate education business as well. So look out, get in while you still can get them. Grand Cam, ladies and gentlemen. 
my guest today in the A-Game podcast is my buddy Grant Kemp from creativecashflow.com. Grant and I are in a mastermind together. Uh, he's helped me out with some technical stuff. He's one of the most intelligent people I've met on the real estate circuit. He's really good with details specifically, which I think are a huge thing because I keep saying over and over again that the dollars are in the details when you're building a business and you're doing real estate. So you absolutely need people who have that brain and that attention to detail like Grant does. I also know his partner, Ron, who's an awesome guy. Um, and we're going to jump in today on some of the things, uh, not necessarily just the real estate technical topics, but building a business, which I think is equally, if not more important. But thank you very much for being on today. Thank you for all the help you've given me so far and give everybody a quick 30,000 foot view of yourself. Man, I, I appreciate it. You've said uh, uh, some super kind words. So now I have to just like try to try to pull in my theater background and like act like I'm 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 worth that. No, so thirty thousand foot view of me is that I am. So like a lot of times you always hear about that person that's like, oh yeah, you can totally get into this with no money. Like you can get it, but then you find out that like you know their dad gave them a five million dollar line of credit. That they, you know what I mean? It's like never that. But like I'm I'm the guy that actually did get into this with no money. Like I quit my job. Um, I had literally $6,000 out of my, like I cashed out my IRA with, or my 401k with 6,000 bucks. And then, uh, and then just had to go make it happen. And I was very blessed that, you know, it took five years to become a millionaire within that. And it was through creative financing. And that was my main niche is that, you know, it's, I, I was way more interested in tomorrow money than today money. Uh, so I got into doing seller financing because seller financing was something that you could do without having a lot of resources behind you, just like all the reasons why people get into wholesaling. I found that niche, really loved it and kind of built from there and uh, uh, got to partner with uh, kind of the premier attorney when it comes to to seller financing in Texas. So I really got a super, his name's Scott Horn. He's a, he's a, a great guy. Really got a super detailed, super legal view of how to do things the right way, how to, you know, how people do things the wrong way. I went on to uh, create uh, Texas Pride Lending, which became the largest RMLO service in the nation, which means that I basically handled all the Dodd-Frank compliance for anybody that wanted to do seller financing. Because again, I was out there doing seller financing and I started realizing like everybody was just kind of wild westing it. Right. And so, uh, uh, so I was like, well, Hey, there's a niche here. We can, we can do the Dodd-Frank compliance for them. So I went, I've actually read Dodd-Frank from start to finish, which I don't even know if Barney Frank or Chris Dodd have done themselves, but, uh, but I read it with a, with an investor's mind, seeing what we could do. And we grew that company really big. I sold that company after a couple of years, um, so that I could focus back on the real estate investing side of things. And, and, uh, in the meantime, you know, created creativecashflow.com because I just, Honestly, I'm just freaking passionate about training. I just love teaching people how to do this stuff. And so very fortunate for us, real estate makes a lot of money, lets you to kind of do something you're passionate about too. So now I get to teach people how to do that. So yeah, so stay super involved in the uh, uh, legal process. We're in, you know, DC, I'm in state, local, uh, you know, Senator meetings and stuff like that to make sure that seller financing is something that stays available for both the, cons excuse me, the consumer and the investor. Um, but the, that's the, maybe that was the 15,000, the 30,000 foot view is I buy houses and I teach people how to do it. That's the 30,000 foot view, <laughs> but the 15,000 was got in with literally nothing. And uh, I say literally, you know, six, six grand and then built from there using creative financing. And so now we try to teach people, uh, how to do that, right? Basically what, how do you take a holistic approach to, yes, you should be a wholesaler. You should be, you know, having rentals, you should do sub two, but it's all part of a bigger picture, which is having a business that buys houses for you rather than having a support system that forces you to continue buying houses. I love that, man. All right. So the 15 and the 30 were both awesome. I love every part of that. And I, I truly do 
really appreciate the success stories of people that do start out with nothing because I came in a very, very similar background that my, you know, my parents didn't come for money. I didn't have any money and I had to really stair step my way in there. And I do come across a lot of people from like you teaching how to do this, that people, even, even the people that do have money, they won't risk money that they have to take a chance and make their life better. And I always admire the person that's like, man, if I had what that person had, they have no idea what I would be doing. Like to have 50 or a hundred or a million dollars in my account. And they're going to hold on to it until the day they die versus the risk takers who are like, man, it's kind of this or it's nothing. And I interview a lot of people on this podcast, like the last guy, Zachary Babcock, that like took out a title loan on his car or or Billy Alvaro that was $14 million in debt is now on top of the world. Like that's the kind of people I like to be around. That's why I love connecting with guys like you. But most people, when they're going, man, I, I have to cash out my retirement, I only have six grand in it. The mentality that people are taught is to hold on to that six grand because that's your nest egg. But guys like you and I are thinking like, well, I can't do anything with this anyway. I'm going to take it and I'm going to make something out of it. I'm going to turn that six into 12, that 12 into 24. So talk about the mentality. Was there fear or insecurity when you took that out at first? Because that's a really scary thing for most people who are looking to jump into real estate and find a way to kind of get involved. No, I think that's an excellent question. I really do. Uh, you know, the, um, so it, here's one of those things that, so I, I try very hard not to be a, uh, you know, a Bible beater or anything, but I've, you know, the, the line that I draw on it is that like, if I get asked about decisions that I made, like, I'm just not going to hide where that comes from, but understand like whatever, right. Whatever you believe is, is whatever you believe. But uh, from my standpoint, it was, you know, when we decided to or when I, well, I mean, really when we decided for me to quit, it was, so I'm, I was married at the time. I'm still married. Uh, uh, a phenomenal wife that I have. Uh, I didn't just up and quit, right? Like we spent a lot of time in prayer and really like trying to figure out like if this was the right move. And when I say a lot of time, it was a matter of probably a couple of few months, maybe. Um, but you know, I think anytime you're going to be making a big decision like that, from my standpoint, like it's gotta be done with two people's pieces of permission from, from, for me. And that is, uh, that is through a lot of prayer and through a lot of conversation with my wife, because when we were talking about it, uh, and it actually gets into the next portion of, of the, the two pieces that I think are so important for that answer, which is you've got to be right by your community, whatever that means, your support system, right? If you've got significant others, if you've got family, uh, if, if, if you are religious, I, you know, I do think it is a big deal. You should be praying. You should not do something that you don't think is right or that, you know, that that's, you're trying to force your hand in uh, on that. But I think the, the big part of the pragmatic side of actually taking that step is realistic expectations, right? So I understand now more than ever what a huge turnover real estate is. Right. I mean, how many times and, and those of you watching uh, comment below or I don't know if there's even comments. I'm assuming there will be some sort of commenting system. But if not, whatever, just digitally raise your hand and I will telepathically see you raising it uh, is how many times have you gone to a, a RIA, like a, a real estate meetup? And if you go to that same meetup. Six months, eight months later, you might see three of the same people, Right. Real estate is an incredibly high turnover. And I think the biggest reason for that is unrealistic expectations. Too many people only hear, well, Grant quit his job and had 6,000 bucks. And, you know, now he's got this huge portfolio and blah, 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 blah. So I'm going to quit my job because I have 6,000 bucks. And what people don't, and then the other thing is everybody, you know, sees the the success story and they don't fully appreciate the work that gets there because it's almost become a meme, 
right? Like if all the Facebook marketing and Instagram marketing that goes out there like, oh, you got to hustle and grind and blah, blah, blah. Like that's, 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 yes, you do. Right. But the, but the hustle is not the point, right? Too many people let their, let their uh, 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 pheromones active, not pheromones. What's the word? Endorphins activate off of the hustle because now they're doing what that guy that they follow on Instagram shows of like, Oh, I'm lacing up at four in the morning, gone time to knock doors. The hustle is not the point, right? The point is to make money. You're in this business to make money. And so the, the hustle is just a, a waypoint to the actual goal. And people get too satisfied with working hard. It's not about working hard. You didn't quit your job to work hard. You quit your job to make money. And so there's kind of two sides of this unrealistic expectation is if you get in just thinking, well, I'm going to be in real estate. And then I get, you know, if I put real estate investor on my business card, then all of a sudden there will be big boobs and a Lamborghini will show up. Like that's just how it works. I I followed enough Facebook people. It's not how it works, right? I quit my job after a lot of conversation with my wife and after a lot of prayer because that conversation was, hey, look, if I do this, like I'm going to have to work my butt off for a while, right? And like, I'm not going to be present for a minute, but like it is a kind of Dave Ramsey-esque live now like nobody else so you can live later like nobody else kind of situation. But you got to go into there with this idea of I cannot hustle for the rest of my life. Hustle is nothing, right? But you're going to have to hustle. You're going to have to figure it out. You're going to have to work really hard. And I literally, and this is one of the things, like I say this and because of Instagram marketers and Facebook marketers, everybody kind of thinks it's, I'm speaking in hyperbole and I'm not. When I say I averaged 15 hours a day, seven days a week for 18 months. And I didn't take a day off when I quit my job, right? Now, I was 24 years old. I'm not going to be able to do that right now. Like I'm old and I got a kid, right? I got to be realistic about it. But we knew going in, if I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to put it all on the line and I'm going to risk everything for this, it's going to be on me to make sure that I do the things that lead to money getting deposited into this bank account in an ethical manner, in a repeatable manner that builds a company that allows this to keep happening so that I can back off. And since then, I've spent you know, a couple of months in Japan. I took six months off in, you know, 2017. Like you put in the work, I built the, 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 the portfolio. And that's the beauty about portfolios. That's the beauty about recurring income through, you know, my favorite with the creative financing world is that, yeah, I did put the work in. Yeah. I did put some systems in. Yeah. I did hire people and make sure that that was going so that when I didn't feel like coming to the office for six months, I could, and I was still getting deposits in the bank account you've got to have realistic expectations. You've got to talk with your, your support system. And part of that realistic expectation is not, well, I've heard a couple of podcasts and I've got $6,000, therefore I can quit my job. Do not quit your job until you have a proof that your job is keeping you from making more money. That's when you quit your job, right? Now for me, I had done two deals when I quit my job. And one of which was the deal, it was the home I lived in. I'd come to find out it's house hacking, Built, you know, bought a duplex, lived in half, rented half, bought one more house and was like, there's too much money in this. My nine to five where I'm making $50,000 a year is getting in the way of me making more. So I quit and I did more, but I had a proof of concept, right? Go take action. See that you know for sure that if you quit, you're going to be the kind of person that can go out and make something happen from it. Because like I always say, we're investors. We're not gamblers, right? Don't gamble on anything invest in yourself, invest in your business. Don't gamble.
I love that, man. I think that that's a phenomenal answer. And that expectation, I think is huge. And, you know, I think that's a big part of the problem with the real estate education industry, as well as the, the social media um, real estate guys that are out there, because everybody, again, they, and, and I, I recently had this conversation with somebody who was talking about like some of the old school guys we dealt with. I think it was Mike Ely. We were talking about like the Robert Allens and the Grant Cardones, and the Robert Kiyosaki's. I'm like the original no money down real estate gurus. And at that time when I was going through it and learning, nobody told me about deals that went bad. Nobody told me about risks. It was such a big show and a big sales pitch of it's amazing. Everybody loves everybody. You know, money falls out of trees. You don't really have to work that hard. All you have to do is write us a check and we're going to take care of everything. And then I remember jumping in and actually doing it. And when I was in the middle of doing deals and had real questions, those guys couldn't answer it that I was surrounded by initially. And then I started finding some guys that could and realized that, you know, the, not necessarily the guys that were the faces, but the guys that were grinding out every weekend with them, those guys actually knew. And I started kind of getting close with them, but I appreciated so much more hearing the stuff to avoid learning from other people's mistakes. That to me was way more important than all the Lamborghinis and the big boobs and all the stuff that you're talking about. And so I, I knew getting in that I was the sucker who fell for the, and I was willing to put in a lot, but I realized how hard it was and nobody else was getting told that. So I've always been big on like, Hey, you want to get into real estate? How many deals have you done? Not okay. We're not going to be talking about buying a dream car and quitting your job and doing a, you know, a hundred unit apartment. We're going to talk about doing one deal in the next three months. Like if we can't get through that, None of this other stuff matters. So I always like to set that bar low and just say, let's get through the first one. Let's go through this first three months because when people start out a lot of the time, it's not even really the real estate stuff that you're getting hammered on. You're more of a guidance counselor, the emotional stuff going through that first deal. So emotionally, when you guys were going through that, especially, you know, you have a wife at the time you're young, were you getting a lot of support from people in your life or were you getting a lot of negativity that you guys had to fight through and cut out for for doing something allegedly crazy, like quitting your job and jumping into being a real estate investor. (laughs) Right. No, that's, that's another good question. Right. So I'm very fortunate. I've been blessed in my life that I've just got, I've got a, I've got a good family. I've got a good support system. You know, I've got good people around me who are supportive. And if that's not the case for you, then I encourage you to get that. Uh, You know, one of the things that I, I, uh, a lot of people are very motivated by like, you know, the people who didn't believe in them, right? Like that's something you'll hear them, you know, it's like, oh, well, somebody said that I couldn't do it. And, it, and that's just never really been me. Uh, that's never really been my thing um, because I'm an extremely self-motivated guy. Like I don't need haters, right? Like I don't need to to have that kind of, uh, but I will say that, you know, so, so take out like the negativity and then just think because you've got negativity, you've got neutralism and you've got positivity, right? Like, so at the very minimum, I was met with neutralism uh, from people of just like kind of a, okay, cool. Like, yeah, prove it sort of thing. But, but having a support system around me was very important. And here's one of the things that's so big about that, like, especially with my wife, right? Is that how many guys do you run into or, or girls, whatever, you know, people that you get into that you see that get into real estate? How often would you say, maybe not how often, I don't know how to ask this question, but how often would you say that you run into the person where like, guy gets into real estate. And then ultimately within that first year, that puts a big stress on their romantic relationship, whether that's a wife or a girlfriend or something like that. How, you know, you you see where I'm going with that? Yeah. I'd say very often, very often. Right. The big piece, 
behind that again is realistic expectations and understanding. Like one thing that I had to learn is that like guys like us, we're, we're sales guys, right? Like at our heart and you gotta, gotta be a sales guy. You're going to get into this. You gotta have some sales to you in one way or another, but we need that win, right? You need that win. And so you'd come home. I would come home, man, I got a, I got a deal today. It's freaking killer. I'm going to make this, this, and this. It's so awesome. Well, we know, cause we're in the industry that a deal isn't a deal until the money hits the bank account, right? It's not a deal when you contracted it. It's not a deal when you send, you know, when you get out of your option period, it's not a deal the day of closing. It's not a deal when you're at the closing table. It's a deal when everybody signed at the closing table and that check gets deposited into your account. And even then I've known one guy who got it pulled back from title (laughs) after that happened, right? It's not a deal till the money hits your bank account. And we get that, but your significant other doesn't right? They're not in the industry. They hear, oh, I got this deal today. And they say, finally, I can go grocery shopping. And then when it falls through, they're like, what the hell are you even doing? Like, why is none of this ever working out? Right? So having kind of that understanding, having that communication uh, is very important. And my wife has been extremely supportive the entire time understanding. Yeah, I get it. Like, I'm proud of you. Thank you for working so hard so that we can have the life that we want to have in the future. And, you know, let's go. But that is not a one-sided relationship, you know, again, and I, again, and I hate to, cause I know I have to toe a line whenever we're on public, but the best, uh, the best analogy that I've heard of that was in marriage counseling with my pastor, you know, cause there's a, there's a piece in the Bible that a lot of misogynists will use uh, to be a misogynist jerk, which is that like, you know, the, the woman is the weaker vessel. Right. And, and that gets misinterpreted a lot. And one of the things that my uh, marriage counselor said, which was so great when we were, when we were leading up into, into getting married, he's like, look, you know, Grant, it is your job to lead the the family. That is absolutely true. Like biblically, that's true. Like you're the leader of the family. And yes, it says the, the woman is the weaker vessel, but like, look at my shelf over there. And he had this beautiful, like crystal, like merry-go-round kind of thing, right. Sitting next to a signed, like Nolan Ryan baseball. Right. And he's like that, crystal, you know, merry-go-round is undoubtedly worth tons and tons and tons and tons more money than that baseball right next to it. But it's also undoubtedly weaker than that baseball next to it, right? Weakness and value are two completely different things. But as the baseball, as the leader in this relationship, like we have to understand that we don't make decisions. We don't do things without the consideration for what it does to that other person, So when you have that support system, like you're talking about, right, did you have people that were against you or were they supportive? Even the ones that are supportive don't take advantage of that support. When you're making these decisions and when you're moving forward, you have to understand that they are being phenomenal, but it's also your job to be paying attention to their needs, right? It's kind of this circular thing to understand they're being supportive of you because they love you, but are you making the best decision for those supporters, if they're your significant other, if they're your family, whatever, hey, they can support you until you're living under a bridge. Is that the best decision for you to make for them to go forward with that? So make that a two-way street, right? The only to answer for the fun story, right? That's the more like get deep down into it. But for the fun story of it, the the only people that told me uh, that I wasn't going to make it was the people at my nine to five, the people who just didn't get it. Because I was researching it there and I'm like, look, guys, like this is pretty legit. And when I told one of my coworkers I was going to leave to do this, he's, he just laughed at me. He goes, dude, you are going to lose your ass. And that always stuck with me. You know what I mean? Like it always was like, what, how, like, we're cool. How are you going to say that to me? You know, Uh, that was the only person that 
ever had any kind of negativity uh, to it. And then, you know, outside of that, it was either neutralism or, um, or support. I've been very fortunate in that way. I love that, man. And you know, that, that old cliche that nobody who's doing better than you is ever going to going to criticize you is really true. And when I think back, I had a couple of examples like that too. When I told people, Hey, I'm going to go do this. And they started going, well, you know, what you're doing is taking advantage of people. And what you're doing is this, and it doesn't work because of that. And if it was this great, and da, da, da. I'm like, I realized that all the people that were giving me this advice on why it wouldn't work had no experience at all in that field yeah. of anything entrepreneurial. So it's like, why would I be taking advice from somebody? I mean, I wouldn't go ask somebody jujitsu advice that's never done jujitsu in their life, but people <laughs> do that a lot with real estate specifically. Like I find all that, well, my uncle Barry said, I probably shouldn't be buying this house. Well, what does he do? Oh, he's a gardener or he's a teacher or he's a librarian or, you know, he's a, none of the stuff that has anything to do with finance or real estate. So it's like, well, why would you listen to him? But people listen to him because now they have an excuse to not go after it. Uh, it's, you know, they don't want to admit that they're scared that it might work or it's scared that they're going to give it their all and they might fail. So I think your story for going after that probably makes you a much better educator because you can, again, set that realistic expectation of not only what it's going to take work-wise, but what it's going to take as far as personal sacrifice, personal relationships. And you've put that time in, you know, it's like going to a fitness trainer. You don't want to be learning from the guy who's telling you, Hey, you got to wake up at 5am and run five miles. It's like, but you wake up at 10 a.m. and you weigh 300 pounds. Like you don't do that. So how can you expect me to do that? So I've always felt like, you know, the ones who have done it and built that, you know, you're not afraid to put that hard work in. So you would have that same expectation for your students. So to flip that now, starting starting out for students and people that you're teaching, which we'll talk about your education side too. But what t- sort of expectation do you give people that are starting out? You know, they're coming to you, they're saying, hey, I want to get into real estate. I have some money in my retirement or I have some time. You know, what can I expect in my first six months realistically? No, that, that, that is an excellent thing. And it's such an, it depends answer, right? Because it really depends on what you're willing to give it. So what I've boiled everything down to, in my opinion, is that real estate deals take three things. It takes time, money, and knowledge, right? Like you've got to have those three things to get a real estate, uh, a real estate deal down. So what you have to do, if you're looking into get to real estate or looking to get into real estate, you've got to decide what are you going to leverage to get to your goals. So what's your goal? First of all, right? Uh, are you a traction guy? Have you read traction? Yes. So I love traction and I think it's a, every business owner should read it. One of the the great analogies that I love in there is that so often, uh, you know, business owners will build the ship and they're so focused on, you know, look how shiny the, 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 you know, lacquer is on this. And look, I built this door and it's got a perfect like eighth of a millimeter tolerance across the entire thing. It's perfectly waterproof. Look how beautiful. And you're like, man, this is the prettiest ship I've ever seen. Like, where's your compass? And then they're like, forgot to put one of those in. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that is so much what people do when they get into real estate, what that people do when they get into entrepreneurism is you'll build this thing that looks great in your immediate vicinity without thinking about where you want to go. So you've got to start from the end. You've got to start with where you want to go. What do you want? Are you somebody who's going to use the word legacy? Do you want your kids' kids to go to a good school? Or do you want to make $50,000 a year so that you can travel in your Winnebago and, you know, work from wherever and you're fine with that, right? Like what's the, what's the goal here. And then you have to come back to the beginning and say, and just for real quick question or real quick ways to, to hammer out that goal. One goal uh, set that I think that you need to have is how much money do you need to be having deposited into your personal bank account? Don't think about the business into your personal bank account every month 
for you to one day roll over in bed when your alarm goes off and be like, you know what? I'm not really enjoying this anymore. So I'm just not going to do it anymore. And this is my way of saying it gives you the ability to retire, not to say you will retire, but how much money do you need to have passively depositing into your bank account every month to give yourself permission to retire? That's, that's one of the most important goals that I think that you can come to. So then you've got to come up with, and the second part of that is how long from now, how many years from now do you realistically think that you can achieve that? Okay. Is it five? Is it 10? Is it 15? That changes what you need to do in the meantime. So now you need to look at your resources when you're saying, how long is it going to take me to get there? Well, what is there? First of all, second of all, what are your resources? Do you have time? Do you have money or do you have knowledge? Because you've got to leverage one of those things. So what you can do, like if you're a time guy, say that you don't have any money. You're like me. What I did, I didn't have money, but I was willing to dedicate my time. So I bugged the crud out of the top guy in Texas who did the niche that I wanted to do for like six months until he finally called me into the office to have a meeting. And he kind of cracked the door open a little bit and I kicked that door down and he gave me a key to the building at that day. The next morning I was told, hey, Here's a key. Show up tomorrow. You can sit in that office and get some work done. I didn't know what time the office opened. So I was sitting there at like 630 in the morning with my polo and dressed up and ready to go before anybody else showed up. Like I leveraged my time for his knowledge and his money. And we made a bunch of money together. Right. Are you the guy that has money in a 401k or an IRA that you want to self-direct? All right. That's great. You have money to leverage, which a puts it on easier mode, especially because you have the ability to be a lender instead of just being, a, you know, you, guys like us are chumps. We're the ones that are working our butts off. Being able to get a text message and say yes and make money on your money, that's the way to go. Uh, but if you've got an IRA or 401k you're trying to invest, okay, you got to have the other two things somehow. So how are you getting time and knowledge? Are you getting knowledge through watching these things? So now you have knowledge and money and you can hire other people's time right? Like this is what you need to be thinking about is what are you leveraging to get to your goal? And so then that's going to affect how quickly you're able to get there. Because part of, again, if you know what there is, is there, I want to be buying, you know, and making a million dollars in net worth every year and adding another, you know, whatever, 800 or 1.5 to my income every year is going to be a much different answer than I want to buy 20 houses, or 20 doors or a, or a hundred, you know, hundred door complex or whatever. Right. So knowing what that is, setting a realistic expectation. And then because I'm, because I, I think it's, it's poor. Um, I don't know. It's, it, I, I don't want to ever give somebody an unrealistic because like it isn't, it depends thing. It depends on your situation. So what are you willing to give to it? Where do you want to go? My best advice I can give you is to go find somebody who was successful in that area. The type of person that, would legitimately like try to get a relationship. These have been the best relationships I've ever had in the business. Try to get relationships with people that if, if it came down to it and you're like, bro, can you like walk me through your expenses that they would sign into their online banking and walk you through it? Like that's who you need to listen to on this. Not the person on Instagram or Facebook saying you got to hustle and grind because they don't know your situation and they don't know if they're actually broke in the background. Cause Lord, I'll tell you, I mean, Nick, you've been around enough educators to know. Lots of these guys that are charging you a bunch of money aren't actually doing anything. So find somebody like that. Ask them what it was to get to their area. But here's your short answer. That's the real answer. The short answer is 
Historically speaking, what I've seen in the industry is from the time you start Googling, how do I buy? Because I'm in single family, right? Nick, I know you do a lot of multi, multi-family multi land, so it's going to be different. I, I, I won't act like I know that because I don't, but in single family. From the time you start Googling, how do I buy houses? To the time you buy your first house, it's typically nine months. It is typically another six months before you have multi-house months that you can do semi-consistently, Okay. And everybody loves to flex and act like, well, I got my deal in the first month. They didn't. That is part of the unrealistic expectation. And unrealistic expectation is the cause of burnout. So stop listening to people who say all you have to do is work for three months really hard and boobs and Lambos will show up because it's not true. It's typically going to be nine months to 15 months before you're getting consistency in that. That's normal. So go into it expecting that to be normal. Now, the caveat is if you get into a good group, one of the reasons we spend so much money to be in a, in a group with Nick is that it condenses time. We want to get where we could have been in a couple of years in our first quarter's meeting, right? That's what the benefit is to getting into like a mastermind group is you condense the time so you can learn from other people's mistakes who will be honest with you, who will actually show you uh, kind of the ropes there. So that's kind of, you know, the if you don't have education around you, you're just trying to go out there and do it. You're not buying into proximity, probably to be nine months to 15 months. If you can buy into proximity, I think Nick hit the nail on the head. You'll probably get your first deal in your first quarter if you're in a good group, right? And so what we typically want to do, like in our group, my drive is I want people to be in three quarters with us where they would have been in four years without us. That's That's the kind of group you want to align with. Does that, I know that's, you know, I kind of took a complex answer to that, but I think, you know, Nick, what would you, would you tag anything into that? No, I, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, like you said, if, if somebody plans on a year to get their first deal and they knock it out in six months, then you set the expectation that they're excited versus saying like, oh man, you know, you could do this in 30 days. Like I get those people all the time. Like I have nothing. I have a bill due in 30 days. They're going to take my house. Should I get into this? It's like, you're you're not even going to have it half figured out by then. So, you know, and, and I think what you said was so important that most people don't really put enough into, but setting that expectation for it's going to take X amount of time. Whereas everybody else goes, it's real estate. I'm going to work for three months and then I'm going to live in Hawaii for the next five years and never have to worry about anything. And when that doesn't happen, they get upset. And what I always tell people that I'm talking to, whether it's just an investor getting in or it's somebody that I'm teaching in a class, I say, look, There's literally no other business that you would go and say, I'm going to start a new business today and expect to put like hardly any work in, hardly any money in, have no prior knowledge and be retired in three months with nothing else. Most businesses are designed to fail in the first five years. Statistically, you wouldn't go, oh, I'm going to be a doctor. So I'm going to read a doctor book. I'm going to get on the podcast and then I'm going to go do surgery or I'm going to go listen to a couple of podcasts and go fly a plane. But for some reason, because of, I think some of the bad people that have put those messages out for years. They go, oh, yeah, I read a couple of books. I listen to a podcast and I'm a millionaire and they don't realize all those other stories in there. So I think what you said is, is absolutely perfect. And that to me is the, the best thing you can do to set somebody up for success, to set a realistic expectation. So I appreciate that you went detailed and you went broad on that, which is kind of leading me to my next question is, has your brain always worked like that? Because I really, it's remarkable how you're able to break down those details because I have a lot of trouble with that. And, and we're going to parlay that into the next question because you and I were talking before I started recording about how you're not really passionate about real estate, the, the ins and outs of real estate. You're more about building a business 
So you can use real estate to really create free time and create massive income because that's something that, like you said, with that door, if you're focusing on the doorknobs and the space between the, you're you're never going to get anywhere. So you have a way of breaking things down on a molecular level that I don't see a lot of people being able to do. And you're very logical and step-by-step about it. So you're able to teach it and you're able to, to explain it in a very realistic and understandable way while not boring people. Cause sometimes the data can be very, very, very dull. And I feel that you keep things exciting. Was that something you had to learn to do or have you always had that curious mind to figure out really how to get in and figure out how things work? Yeah, that's, uh, well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate everything you just said. That's super kind. Um, yeah, I think that, uh, so I come from the IT background, right? I come from, from uh, I did like automation yeah. for a stock company. Um, I don't know how stocks work, but I know how their automation works. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of, I, I do like uh, the puzzle pieces of it, right? So I was a musician my whole life. I played in rock bands, got to tour around and, you know, got on the charts for a little bit. It was kind of cool. And uh, then I did music production, right? So it's, you know, I really enjoyed the, the cause we're talking about, I mean, sometimes the sample rates are like, you know, at that point in time, it's like 44 and 48 thousandths of a second. And you, sometimes you're zoomed in that far, like changing things around right now. They're at like 96,000, but, uh, and even more actually. Um, so I do, I think I, 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 uh, and then going into the, the tech space and doing coding and that kind of stuff, there, there is something about that, but I, but I don't want to answer it that way and make anybody feel excluded from that idea of saying, oh, well, he's a tech guy, right? Oh, well, he's a, this or that, like, that's not me. I want to flip this around a little bit and really have you evaluate yourselves, uh, in that side, because I do think it is very important to be able to, um, kind of extrapolate, right. And like blow things out and, and some advice that I can give for trying to think about things, maybe some, some, some logic advice, right. Is, and this comes from my dad who taught me this. And I really like this is to keep things binary, boil everything down into a, into a, into a, a two option answer. Okay. No matter what that option is, no matter how complex anything is, it can be boiled down two steps at a time, just simply by looking at, okay, so, you know, I, um, gosh, what's an example of a problem? Like I, uh, need to get insurance for this property and I've never gotten insurance before. All right. So, uh, do I know an insurance agent or do I need to go Google it? Right. Like, okay, so I know an insurance agent, so I'm going to talk to them and I, right. Like whatever that is. And that's kind of a poor example, but you can usually boil things down into a binary, Am I willing to do this or this and then take the option? Okay, this or this, then take that option, this or this and build yourself out for that because you do need to kind of see where things lead and you do want to kind of give yourself that uh, that option. So if you find that you like doing puzzles, if you find that you enjoy details, I would just say like, this is going to be really good for you. However, if you find that you don't like details and you don't like puzzles, I think one of the biggest successful, the, 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 the most successful people I know are the ones who know how to leverage their surroundings. Okay. And I say surroundings, I say resources and I say resources, people think money. It's not money. It's your time. It's your knowledge. It's your money. It's your collective, you know, social circle, all that kind of stuff. How can you, here's, here's where I can make some things binary for you. Am I, am I uh, super puzzle oriented or not? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not. So now how can I fix that problem? 
How can I fix that problem? I know the company needs somebody who can extrapolate information and make things happen. So one, one of the things that I'd have to do now as a business owner, understanding that I'm weak there is I've got to find how to fill that role in my company. And that could be hiring somebody that could be partnering with somebody that could be improving yourself through education, right? There's many different ways that you can get there. But if you can start thinking of uh, your company as a third party entity, because too many people think of their LLC simply as a way to not get sued in real estate. That's not true. What you need to think about is that you work for this company and you have to, at the end of the year, report back to your board of directors on why you are or are not are, blah, 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 are or are not profitable. That's how you need to think of your LLC. It is not a thing that keeps you from getting sued, even though it is. It is a thing that you work for. You have created a business that you work for as the CEO or whatever, and you have to report at the end of the year to your board of directors of why you were or were not successful. So instead of, and here's a very simple way, a very simple trick for you guys to help yourselves get out of the hustle grind mentality and get into the business ownership mentality is to ask yourself, to stop. I want you to catch yourself every time you say, hey, I need to make 15 calls today. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to do whatever. Stop saying I need to. Start saying 15 calls need to be made today. The insurance on Westview needs to be purchased. Because now that means a VA could do it for you. Now that means you can hire. Your company needs this to be done. You don't have to be the one who does it. So if you do not, to tie this back together, if you do not align with kind of the, hey, I'm very, I like to extrapolate a lot of information and, you know, logic my way through it, your company needs that. So find somebody who can do that for you because you're going to have some other strengths. You're going to have some strengths in the areas of maybe sales or capital raising or, you know, whatever that might be. So bring that to the table and find somebody who compliments you, whether that's an employee or a partner and put them into that role because your company needs these things. It just doesn't have to be you who does it. I think that that's amazing. That delegation has been huge. So I want to dig into that on two levels. One of them being, I was a little bit guilty of this, very guilty of this for a while. And I still, I guess, am because now I'm comparing myself to higher standards and people that have really mastered this like yourself. And, you know, but Lee Kearney and Mark Evans were big on beating me over the head that I might know more details about real estate than some other people, but they're making a lot more money than me because they understand business better and they have a business set up. And that's when I realized that all this, this knowledge that I have and all this experience that I have if I'm still the one doing everything, it really doesn't matter. It's like Nike or like you said with the door, you know, Nike makes one great shoe. Great. You made one great shoe. It's great. You can put it in the case, but how did you make a legacy for yourself? How did you really get your time back? Didn't. So putting that in there, um, what are some things that you do? Cause I know that this is a big passion of yours is really that delegation and setting up that system and setting up things to that way. Like you said, you put 18 months in, so you can now do five years and hang out with your kids and spend that time yourself. So Talk about some of the things that people are doing or you are specifically doing to create more of a business and not necessarily be a quote unquote real estate investor, but really be a business owner who happens to be in the business of real estate. Don't forget to jump on www.nicknicknick.com to see all the different ways we can get together and start doing some real estate for the end of 2020, the beginning of 2021. And more importantly, if you want a copy of our free ebook, How the Coronavirus Has Changed Real Estate, What Every Investor Needs to Know in This Market. 
hondicknicknick.com. Click on get my free ebook and you will get sent a free digital copy of our book about how you need to change your business and how the business has changed as far as investing in real estate over this last year. Nice, quick, easy read. Get you some good fundamentals, some good foundations on there. Uh, Costs a little bit of money if you get it on Amazon, but you can get it free through our site. So don't forget to check it out. Jump on there and also touch base with us to see how we can start to help you with any of your real estate needs and wants to get this year off and running with some good cash flow and some good assets in your books. Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So, you know, I'll actually start out with something that kind of leads in from the lead in that you gave of that. But just hopefully this helps unlock um, if anybody still is kind of having trouble really understanding the power of entrepreneurism versus real estate, because it's not to say I don't love real estate. I love I love what real estate does for us. Right. Like real estate achieves bigger, better goals than anybody. But but let me ask you. So, Nick, how how much money do you think? that Coca-Cola makes on the sale of a can of Coke? I'd say 65% profit. Okay. So they're making what? Like freaking 60 cents (laughs) per Coke. Yet they're one of the largest market cap companies in the world. So why is it that this company who's got a net profit of 60 cents per widget is the biggest market cap company in the world. And your company that makes $20,000 per widget is not, right? Why is that? It's it's because Coca-Cola runs a freaking business. They run a company like a company needs to be run. They are a shining example of phenomenal marketing, phenomenal operations, paying attention to the, you know, all that kind of stuff that goes into running a business. So now if we just say, oh, wow, yeah, I guess that's totally true. Like my widget makes 20 grand. Apple doesn't even have a product that costs $20,000, much less one that gives a $20,000 net profit. And that's every day for us. You know what I mean? Really let that sink in. So we love real estate. We love the details of real estate. We love what real estate can do for us, but it's not the real estate that makes money. Just like it's not the knowledge that makes money, it's the action. The real estate makes the money, but but to continue making money as a, as a systematic way, you've got to run a business. So then the question comes, so what does that business look like? What are you doing to do that? And and I want to start off by saying, look, man, like I think the closer you or the closer you get into any company, the more uh holes and slop you'll find. My business is sloppy. I have slop. I have things that go wrong in my company. I have, you know, it, it that is part of it, right? We you build, you recognize, but one of the one of the the phrases that I really push in our organization is even bad is good. What I mean by that is I tell everybody bad is unacceptable, but not knowing bad is even worse. So when you can recognize bad, that's good because then we can get into our, our world of not accepting bad and making it better. Every time you can recognize something else that sucks in your company, that's good because it gives you the opportunity to fix that and become a better company. So from a from a philosophical view, things that we are leveraging to, you know, really take the business aspect of it is to get away from the individualism that so many gurus are teaching right now. So it's it's so about like, hey, you can hustle grind and do this on your own because they kind of want people who are going to use the word hater unironically and, you know, and and kind of had this uh, American mentality of like, yeah, it's all me. I don't need nobody. That's not true. You do need people around you. You do need a team. You need support and you will not find success without support of some sort. Even the gurus that are teaching that have big teams behind them, helping them get in front of you, right? 
So you've got to think about the team aspect. You've got to get out of the idea of I need to do this, get into the idea of this needs to be done. Philosophically, you've got to understand what you're about in your company and set that culture and stick to it. One of the big mistakes that uh, Ronnie and myself have found over this last quarter and a half is we exhibit a different culture than we accepted, right? And I actually just fired somebody on Thursday, two days ago, partially because of this. Fired somebody last a couple of months ago because of this. We have to understand, you have to understand what are you about? What is your company ideally look like for you? Is this a lifestyle company? Do you like working 16 hours a day? What do you want out of of this and the people that are around you? And enforce that. Create your core values and make those a hireable and fireable offense for your core values. And make sure that your employees can tell you what your core values are, right? Stick to that because culture is the biggest thing that you can get in a company because you can train knowledge. You can get somebody. I actually don't like hiring people from within the the industry. That's another answer to this. I don't like hiring people from within the industry. Because, you know, there was the story of the the four-minute four mile, right? I think we were talking about this the other day, right? Like, there's the four-minute mile, and everybody thought it couldn't be done. One guy runs it. The next year, like, 80 people run it, right? Like, we run a, a three-minute mile every day. I don't want some realtor or wholesaler who has these limitations put into their head to come and work for me because then they don't understand when I tell them to go kick down this door and do this crazy thing that we do every day that that's a possibility and we got to get over that. Whereas if somebody outside of the industry comes in, then that's just what they learn of the industry. They're like, oh, I guess you can do that. And then everybody else looks at it and they're like, holy crap, what are you doing? So that's one of the things that I like to do. Uh, A big piece from my aspect is, you know, right now it's 2020, soon to be 2021. We have technology available to us right now that was not available to us for, a you know, forever. Um the crazy thing that's happened right now is that we've hit somewhat of a similarity of the industrial revolution, but with the internet. And the sooner you can grab onto and appreciate that, the better off you will be in the long run. I'm reading a really good book uh, by General something. I forget his name right now, um, but it's uh, it's called Team of Teams. And it was this was the guy that was in charge of the joint task force that ultimately ended up winning in the in the war on terror. And a big piece of you know what he was um, uh, talking about was that you know the matil- the matillary. I got to stop putting vodka in my water bottles before I start doing these things. Uh, the military had been built for you know, eons, thousands of years on how to, you know, manufacture an efficient and, and, and successful chain of command to get information out. Why is it? And this was his, you know, he gets brought into, which in all accounts, every objectable, objective uh, uh, outlook of our military, that joint task force was the best of the best in the world. So why were they losing to a bunch of kids with AKs? Right. That was the frustration. And the thing that he pushes in this book is a flattening the organization. I really like the phrase. Everyone in your organization is a number three. Everyone. Right. And so I don't know if this is how he interprets it because I haven't gotten it there yet. But I interpret it as I'm a number three when it's my ops manager's process and he needs something done. I work for him. I'm a number three. Right. I'm getting information from him. He's a number three. Because me and Ronnie are owners of the company, right? Like everyone has the ability to make an impact in your job. So you've got to train resourcefulness 
You've got to train ownership, entrepreneurism. Ronnie really likes Patrick, but David, that's a word I got from him. Uh, entrepreneur, like working in a, in a company as an entrepreneur, you know, somebody who takes ownership of their process. I just hired a guy out of Northern uh, uh, New York, upstate New York, who's going to be a phenomenal asset to our company because he really exhibits that, that I want to come in and I want to build something for myself. So look for people who want to work with you, who meet your culture and give them that empowerment. Let them make decisions and give them control of their process. Stop thinking that everything needs to go through you because you can only do so much. You need to get away from before I was a manager, before I was an owner of a company, I had this outlook that if you're a manager or you're an owner, you should be able to step into anybody's position and do it better than them. That was my that was my outlook on management. And it took me a little while to understand that that is absolutely false. You should have people working for you that are 20 times better at that thing than you are. Don't be so machismo and threatened and scared of, you know, your own hubris that you can't have somebody who can outperform you. That is actually how you succeed because you should be able to outperform them in areas they can't and they should be able to outperform you in areas where you are weak. And that is good. Right. So going back to so like the the industrial revolutionary thing um, in that book, Team of Teams, you know, that's one of the things that he realized was when we won, it was because they said, well, hold on, hold on. The way that these terrorist cells are working is that it is a network. It is not a hierarchy. Everyone is a number three. The realization came when they had a news story break on the U.S. side, because you know how news, and it was another one of those, we killed Osama bin Laden's number three. And one of the generals in the room said, man, it feels like we've killed 25 number threes. And that was the aha moment of, wait a minute, everyone's a number three. Everyone in this celled organization has the ability to make decisions and the rest of the cell works on it. And it's because they were digital natives. They were people who understood how to take advantage of the speed at which you can communicate through the internet now. Whereas the military, by the time they had a chain of command go up and down to do an attack, these guys had already Twittered each other and done three more. So they couldn't keep up. So that is a huge cornerstone of our philosophy and moving forward is, look, it's 2020, moving into uh, 2021. When I started this, you know, I basically started from scratch in 2019. And the thought was it's 2019 at the moment. We have technologies that so don't you don't have to look at what the the, you know, whatever the Ron Legrands or the the Robert Kiyosaki's or whoever these guys were, how they did it. Because that was pre-industrial revolution. And that was one of the things that Team of Teams talks about is that this internet age with what we're capable of doing right now is the equivalent to business as the industrial revolution. You've got to get on board with that and understand what you can leverage out on that. So right now I'm in the process to where I can basically automate my entire transaction coordination, my entire uh, administrative jobs. And how many salaries does that save you and allow you to put that back into your company to grow it? And yeah, you know, I get it. It sucks. Like I want to have employees. I like I like contributing to employment and keeping people employed. But I also like not having human error and having things done immediately the same day whenever I need my docs prepped or whenever I need a closing, you know, scheduled or any of that kind of stuff. That can be done by a computer. So the philosophy that we're in right now is higher culture, right? Be very set on your on your core values and and stick to them. Understand that work needs to be done, even if it's not you that's going to do, but it needs to be done, right? You can't just lazy out of it. And from my point, it is we are going to automate every single thing we can possibly automate that does not need a human touch on it. 
sales is going to need a human touch on it. There are going to be areas that if we were to automate it, it would lessen the experience of a white glove experience with our external partners. So we don't automate that. But everything else should and could be automated or could and should be automated. So automate that and allow that to in 10 cents of server time do what you might've gotten out of a $6,000 a month employee. I love that. I think that that's great advice. Now on your team, what do you, what does your team look like as far as people that you have that are hires versus what you're outsourcing to VAs? So actually I, I'm, I'm glad you kind of put it that way because I, that is one of the things that I think has brought us success is that we don't necessarily feel as a outsource to VAs, right? It's a small, it's a small change in verbiage that I think ultimately leads into a large change in, um, in, in, in action and response, right? So we, when I, so I actually consider my VA to be one of my highest performing and most trusted employees I've ever had. Um, and she is treated as part of the team and she is, you know, undoubtedly making less than some of the stateside people that we have to hire just because of conversion rate in our dollars, but in her dollars, she's doing really well in the Philippines. Right. Um, and again, I, you know, we, we treat her as an employee to the degree of, and this is because I think too many people hire VAs and they think of them as a, as a computer that has a brain. Right. But if you treat your VA as an employee, give them the training, give them the, the one-on-one meetings, give them the respect and the communications and all that kind of stuff as a human, as though they were in your office. Dude, my birthday was a few months ago. She freaking mailed me an ice cream cake. From uh, she like went and found somebody to to deliver an ice cream cake to my door that said happy birthday grant from my VA, right? Like it's incredible what you can get. She sent me pictures from being on vacation with her family and they did one of those like lantern send offs where you write like a thing on it for good luck. She had written her health for her grandparents and success for creativecashflow.com on the thing and like sent it up, right? So, and our cold callers, you know, similarly, like if you treat them well, they treat you well. That's one of the things that I've always had with my employees. I've never had somebody quit. I had, I had one person quit, but it was like a a few weeks after they got hired and they got poached by their old employer that offered them like another 30 grand a year to go to them. And I was like, I'm not doing it. Sorry. You know, (laughs) so I don't know if I can consider that a quit. I've never had anybody quit and my employees would walk through fire for me and I would walk through fire for them. Right. And I think that that's very important there. So when you ask, what does the team look like? We do have, so um, administratively, we've got uh, a girl in the VA or a girl in the Philippines. who is phenomenal. Uh, we've got a few cold, we've got one full-time cold caller. Ronnie's actually just hired three more cold callers on Friday, uh, trying them out because that cold call system that we're working right now is working really well. Um, I've got a uh, operations manager in Michigan. Um, we just hired Dispo. Uh, I say hired. I mean, it's hard to say hired when you've got people who are coming in who want to work with you on the business. I'm good with giving up equity. You know, I would. It's it's better to make you know a, a little bit of a watermelon than all of a grape, right? So like, you can give up equities. You can give up stuff if it's going to make up for it in scale. So I say hired, but you know. I always mean it's always up. It's always open. Right. So I hired a guy out of uh, upstate New York uh, for dispositions. I've got a acquisitions guy out of Michigan. I've got another dispositions guy in Houston. Uh, And then we've got a TC that's based here in the Dallas area. And then we keep uh, attorneys on retainer to, to do all of that kind of stuff. And then there's Ronnie and myself running that right now, what we're in the stage of 
is, you know, kind of like I mentioned in 2019, I turned everything upside down as though I'm the Prince of Bel Air. <laughs> Got my life turned upside down and saying like, look, I'm starting to notice this landscape here of what we can have in the future. And this whole buy in your backyard mentality, I no longer think is the right answer, right? I think we've got technology that was not available to us before. I think that I'm a tech guy. Why should I not be able to automate this out? I think that we have some some really good. So the theory was if we can get everything completely cloud-based, everything completely automated out, then I should be able to not care if the best salesman in the state lives in Iowa, I can hire him and get him plugged in and make him make money. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. I mean, I've got employees across seven states and they all log in at the same time. We have a nine o'clock morning huddle and everybody goes and gets their work done and we're buying houses and selling them, you know? So that's, uh, that's kind of the, you know, you're asking what the team looks like. That's kind of our outlook. Now, what we're doing right now is we're intentionally focusing very hard on the SOP build and the, the, systematic, uh, the systematic side of things. We're trying not to buy a bunch of houses. We're only doing like eight or so a month right now. Uh, but the goal is we're scaling to a thousand a year by 2023. What we're trying to do right now is make sure how can we find the most efficient way to buy a single house that takes the least amount of manpower and most amount of automation, getting that really right. Then up the marketing dollars, blow that up in the MSAs that we really like right now to see all the issues there because we're already buying. I'm in like nine states at this point. So we've had to come up with a lot of how do you get the BPOs? How do you get lockboxes on there? How do you, you know, winterize a property, all that kind of stuff, getting those things done. The next stage is then once we've got that to say, okay, now we have a model that is modular that we can just stamp into whatever zip code makes sense for us financially and go from there. And that's the direction that I think people should really be looking is you have the ability to buy remotely in any zip code that you're, that makes financial sense. So go do that. We have the internet industrial revolution behind us. It's time to take advantage of that. And the other good thing, and I know I talk way too much, so forgive me. The last thing that I'll say is uh, uh, the whole idea of really trying to get that one house purchased most efficiently. Like, yeah, Ronnie and I have some pretty lofty goals to do a thousand a year by 2023 for seller financing, you know, portfolioed properties. We like wholesaling. We want to do that. It's about 80-20 where we want to do cash now with wholesale, wholesale flip kind of thing. And then 80% of it being like a seller financed acquisition and disposition or private money acquisition with a seller financed disposition uh, is, is what we're trying to do for uh, that in a couple of years. But I don't want to over, I don't want people to kind of disconnect there and be like, well, that's, that's totally not me. Like I'm not going to do, because the idea here is what we're trying to do is teach how to most efficiently do one deal. So you want to buy 20 a year, then maybe you work four weeks out of the year and you do that 20 times. You want to buy a thousand a year, then you work 40 hours a week and you do that a thousand times. You see what I'm saying? Like that's kind of the modular outlook that I'm trying to apply to our business of how can we most successfully do things in the best manner and then stamp that over and over and over again. I think that that's great. And, you know, being in and around so many good, successful business people, I have found a lot of people are scale, 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 scale but they never slow down to take care of the foundational stuff and build those processes. And then when the business gets too big, those holes in the boat are still there and they sink the ship. So I think what you guys are doing from somebody who's seen businesses make a ton of money and then crash for not doing that is a thousand percent the right decision, especially like if there's no better time to reinvent your business and to, to solidify those things than right now when everything's kind of locked down and transitional. And I, I've been trying to do a little bit of the same thing. So I think that's great. So a couple of follow-up questions there. One is, uh, I know you said you get everybody on um, on a big call. 
are you, you're getting like acquisitions, dispositions, VAs, everybody's getting on at the same time for a morning huddle? Yeah. So that's a really good question. So our morning huddle in its current iteration is not what we want it to be, frankly. But one of the things that we have to understand as a business owner is you've got to hit that MVP, that minimum viable product, right? Like you've got to figure out what is the thing that can get good enough results. And then you kind of step back and look at the overall view and you say, okay, which of these MVPs, if I were to make perfected, will have the largest impact on our on our revenues, right? And then you perfect those things and eventually you get to each of these. So the answer of your question of where we're at right now is yes, we've got everyone on the call. Now it's a relatively small team. That's one of the cool things about what real estate is. And when you are automating and all that kind of stuff, I mean, what we've got, uh, so the cold callers don't get on the morning huddle. Um, but like uh, outside of that, we've got what, I guess, seven or eight, six or seven people that that show up every morning at nine to kind of go over. And what we do is we just go, what, so we're on a Slack channel uh, as you know, we've got in one called internal company wide, right? Every morning I have everybody by 845, they need to submit into that channel the things that they are committing to do for that day, okay? During the next morning huddle, my ops manager goes through yesterday's list and says, okay, uh, Ika, yesterday, did you get the insurance on Hughes? Yes or And it's a yes or no question, right? Yes or no, yes or no, yes or no on everything that they committed to yesterday. So that it's very public that you are being held accountable for the things that you've said that you were going to do. We go through the entire, we go through each team member that way. And then we go back through and we ask everybody individually, where are you stuck? And when we say stuck, we mean, what are the things that you need somebody else on this team in order for you to successfully do, right? So everybody then gives the items that they are stuck with, which involves somebody else needing to help. Our ops manager will type that stuff up as far as, you know, uh, David needs help with, uh, you know, getting loan docs out parentheses grant, and that'll go into it. And that gets submitted into the Slack channel so that we can keep each other in check for doing those things. But ultimately it should be kind of a, uh, a team based with their leadership for the morning huddle. It doesn't necessarily have to be the entire company where we're headed for that restructuring to make sure that we're only really hitting the high points. And then again, that 15 minutes should replace a solid hour or two worth of conversations that would have had without that 15 minutes. And I think that Ronnie got that from Lee, who you mentioned, Kearney, who's, who's just a phenomenal example of business. Yeah, I learned a lot about business from him. He's, he's definitely a study. He's helped me out a lot. Um, my, my other question about what you said was um, digging a little bit because we haven't really touched on it before we jump into now the, um, the educational side, but the transactional side of what you guys are doing, um, I heard you mention you get the seller financing, then you have dispositions. So are you getting and negotiating seller finance deals and then selling those off to other investors for a fee that want to take over that? Or you're holding them for long-term wealth? Talk a little bit about your actual real estate business model. Yeah, for sure. So um, so right now we're, you know, we're, we're Q4 2020. We are concerned with the state of the market. So we are being uh, considerably more conservative with our acquisitions on portfolio properties. And we are focusing on cash heavy products like wholesaling, even though for my entire career, basically I've been seller finance is my number one thing. It's just a right now we want to be getting cash in the door to hold on to that because we're not sure when that dip occurs and what that looks like and it never hurts to have cash on hand. Right. So again, something I said earlier of like, I don't think that it's wise to say I'm a wholesaler or I'm a flipper or I'm a, you know, owner financer or whatever that is, uh, you know, in my world. And I know, again, you're multifamily, but for me, 
It is, we are single family investors, which means that I have a way to take down a property regardless of what the market cycle is, regardless of what the price of that property is, because I can pay 100% for a house using seller financing and still turn six figures, right? But you would never wholesale that. And I'm not paying 100% for houses right now, not sure where the market's going to go, even with owner financing, unless we have a definitive, like I'll do that, but we put everybody under um, 90 day option periods, And then we go find our buyer during that 90 day option period. If we find that buyer, then we close the acquisition and we close the disposition. I might only own a house for an hour with the seller financing side, right? Like that's an option only. I also call it front funding. If it's like, Hey, we're getting this deal with owner financing and at 65 cents on the dollar, let's get this thing closed so that we don't, you know, risk losing it. That's what I call front funding on that. Right. So to walk through the actual real estate side of things, what we're doing right now is we've got two major focuses. We are either wholesaling or we are uh, seller financing. And that is on, an, on, on a dispo side, on the, on the, on the exit, right? Um, so what that means is wholesaling, obviously, is just you're just assigning contracts. So that's, that's, that's kind of easy. Everybody understands wholesaling. Wholesaling, I, I have to catch myself from saying easy. One of the things, real estate is not easy. Real estate is achievable. That's one of the things I like to say. It's a, it's not easy. It's achievable, right? But like relatively wholesaling is super easy uh, as long as you get the, the deal down enough. On the seller financing side, I always want to dispo with seller financing. I do not like rentals. Um, I think the only people that like rentals are people that don't have rentals or people who don't actually check their P&Ls and know how to read them. Uh, people think that they are cash flowing on deals that they haven't made money on in years because they just don't really know how to, how to run that. Uh, rentals are okay, right? They're just not what everybody thinks they are. Seller financing is kind of what everybody thinks a rental is for the most part. Now I have rentals. I do like rentals to a certain degree. My advice on rentals is don't get rentals unless you, you are totally cool with not making a single dollar on that, on that asset until it's entirely paid off. That's when rentals are great because that's when your appreciation matters. That's when your depreciation matters, right? But if you're okay with not making any cash flow on that until it's all paid off, that's my advice, at least on the single family side, or if the rent is twice what the what the debt payment is. That's the first moment in which you might make cash flow consistently. Uh, so I like to sell or finance because like, uh, like, Nick, do you have a mortgage on your house? Yeah. Have you ever called that mortgage company and told them that your toilet was leaking? No. Right. I want to be the bank for people because lending is really where the money is. You know, last time I looked, which was like eight years ago, but it fits my narrative. So I kind of refuse to look again because I know that it's probably not that case anymore, but I like using outdated stats that fit my narrative. But at one point in time, I'll put it that way, Bank of America, like 90% of their income was from mortgage interest, right? So that thing, that means that every stupid llama, every you know ATM, every Super Bowl commercial, every brick and mortar, every employee that sighed and rolled their eyes when you wanted to pull your own freaking money out of your bank is paid for from mortgages at three and a half percent. So why is it that we think only they get to play that game, right? Like when we get to charge nine and 10 and 10 and a half percent on, on, on interest, don't you think that might be something worth looking into? So that's what we do. We sell with seller financing, right? And you already heard two different ways that I do that. I do treat it somewhat like a wholesaler on deals that I think are less than perfect. We do a 90 day option and we go look for our buyer. And if we can't find a buyer, then we don't, we don't close with the acquisition. Uh, when I'm acquiring, I'm either acquiring with seller financing 
or I'm acquiring with private capital. And most of my stuff is done with private capital. Most of my stuff these days is done with somebody who has a 401k or an IRA that they would rather have backed by real estate than the stock market. It's just a normal person who's good at being a engineer or a whatever at their nine to five. They don't necessarily need to, they want their money in real estate, but they don't want to work 15 hours a day on real estate. They're good at their job, right? So, you know, folks that have that 50 to $350,000, I work with a lot of those guys and I will place their capital in the real estate. They get first lien position, right? And then I turn around and I sell it with owner financing and I make the difference in interest uh, uh, carry from that. Or I will buy subject to, meaning that we essentially take over on payments. I would never say that to a seller because it has bad implications, but there are implications that we don't like, but I'll buy sub two. We'll buy free and clear properties and let the seller hold the note and we'll combine all of them, right? Maybe you sub 250, you give the seller a note for 20 and you get, get private money for 30 and then you sell it for 150. You know what I mean? Like knowing the ins and outs of all these strategies allows you to mix them together to make the most money on a deal. And, and, and that's the transactional philosophy that we take on this. Um, I'll tell a real quick story to finish this up, which is an example of exactly that, which is we had a wholesale deal on the line two weeks ago, three weeks ago, set to make $25,000 on the assignment. To make a long story short, I had to send somebody to pick this lady up to sign five times. Her, her nephew was trying to convince her to give him the house. He wasn't going to give her anything for it. And she needed money. We gave her a, a, a really good offer. Uh, long story long, gets to the title company after the fifth time I send somebody out, the, out there to do it. She sits down and then says, I refuse to sign. I need $10,000 more. We were giving her 60. She's like, I'm not going to sign unless I get 70. And again, long story short, if it didn't happen that day, it was not happening. Our buyer was backing out if we didn't close that day, right? So it was either make 25 or nothing. And then it became make 15 or nothing. Well, because of our understanding of being single family real estate investors and not owner financers or wholesalers, I was able to get on the phone with her and negotiated it out to where I was. Uh, what it ended up being is, look, ma'am, go sit down, sign all the documents as they sit. I'm going to, by the time that you're done with those documents, you will have a note in front of you for $10,000. And so I got a 0% $10,000 note for 36 months with her. She signed all the documents and I still got a $25,000 deposit in my bank the next day because we leveraged our knowledge of seller financing and our knowledge of wholesaling and put those two things together. Whereas most wholesalers would have just had to either get nothing or 15 instead of 25. We got a $25,000 deposit. We just gave her a $10,000 note at 0% for 36 months, which cool. I'll take that, you know? That's awesome. So when you're structuring these notes, if you're doing a seller financing and you're taking private money for that, what types of terms are you doing? Do you need to refinance them out at like three or five year marks? Like how, how are you setting those up? Sometimes. Yeah. It really depends on the lender. It depends on who we're working with on what those terms are. So, you know, we worked a lot of different programs, but the, the, but the, uh, the program that most of my lenders are really digging right now is one that I, I headed up and, um, um, you know, I'll tell you, I don't know of anybody in the nation doing it. And I know not a lot of national guys who, who I've told them, they're like, dude, that's, that's really something, right? Like that, because here's the thing, like we're scaling to a thousand a year. I can't debt service a thousand a year. Like if you're doing 80 properties a month and you say you do a thousand dollar payment on each of those 80s, that's $80,000 a month. What if it takes you four months to, to load that property with a buyer? It's $80,000. What's eight times four, six to 32, it's 32 Three, what is that? $320,000 a month out of your pocket in debt service. I can't afford that. So here's the thing that I'm doing with most of my lenders is I'm giving a base rate of return to them. It's always ammed over 30. 
we do five-year calls on some of them. We do 10-year calls on some of them. The intent being maybe we just renew and extend when it gets there. But if not, I'll refinance out or, or do an umbrella loan or something like that. But they get a base return. It's called our Profit Participation Lending Program in exchange for uh, deferring their payments until the income producing period, I will give them 20% of our cash flow on that deal. So it's like, hey, if I do a deal and it's a thousand dollars a month payment to them, that payment goes on the book, right? Like they're getting their base return. That payment goes on the books. But I get into the property, we rehab it, and it takes us whatever, four months to find a buyer for it. So I owe them four thousand dollars from this last four months. I didn't have to write a check for it, but it's on the books. When we sell that property, I'm going to get a 10% down payment from selling it. And I'm going to use $4,000 from that down payment. And I'm going to pay them what I owe them. Everything becomes due when it's income producing. So I pay them what's owed from the behind. And then because they deferred that payment, whatever the cash flow is on that property, they're going to get their $1,000 and they're going to get 20% of that cash flow on top of it. So this is really good for the wealth investor, not the income investor, somebody who needs their money to make money but doesn't need their money to go buy groceries, right? You know what I mean? Like somebody who needs yeah, yeah. the interest to come in so they can pay their electricity bill might not do that. But if it's in your IRA and you can't touch it anyway for 15 years, like, hey, now you're just getting a bonus. It doesn't matter if it was deposited this month or two months from now, if you're also getting 20% of the cash flow. So that's what most people are choosing to go with these days. I love that, man. I think that that's really smart. And, uh, you know, again, it's one of those things people don't think about, you know, hey, I want, I want all these homes. Okay, well, what do you do? while you have all these mortgage payments until you put people in there and sell those properties. So I think what you're doing is extremely smart. I like the creativity there, which is why you're the guy at creativecashflow.com. So I love it. Now, um, finishing up. So I, I call this the victory lap, which we just kind of go over some of these final questions here. You've been really nice with your time. I appreciate it. Um, my first question is what, what is one of your favorite books? So I've kind of got like a top three or four, right? So traction, <laughs> Top three. Get it. The, these are the three or so so books that you can tell on my financials when I read them. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like you look at like, oh, here's the financials. Oh, then he read the book, right? Oh, then he read the book. So uh, Traction, Get a Grip on Your Business is phenomenal uh, business building, right? Uh, if, you, if that one is a little boring to you, you'd probably be more interested by Rocket Fuel, which is the same book, but it's kind of built for different personality types of visionary versus integrator kind of thing. Another one is the reason why I have this little Yoda guy right here. It's called creating a story brand. Uh, you've got to realize in your business with your marketing pieces that are going out and how you're interacting with people is that every story has one protagonist, right? So like Nick, when you woke up this morning, you didn't go like, oh man, I wonder how Grant's doing today, <laughs> right? Like you, everyone is the protagonist of their own story. So if you come in and you're all heroed out, like, oh, I'm the hero, I'm the hero, I'm the protagonist, and I do this and this and this and this and this, you'll get great feedback from them. Those of you who've gone on appointments may have experienced this at some point where somebody's like, man, you're awesome, blah, 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 blah. You leave the appointment, they've really built you up, but you didn't get the contract. It's like they're watching a movie because you've presented as another hero of all these amazing things that you do. Well, they're the hero in their story. So now it's just they're watching another movie and the story is not combined. Creating a story brand really aligns you out that every story has a protagonist and then it has a guide. And the guide, ironically, is stronger than the protagonist. The protagonist is weak and broken and needs help, but the guide doesn't. Yoda didn't spend 30 minutes when Luke Skywalker showed up saying how his daddy taught him the value of hard work and 
he learned the force from this and that and the other. And this is why you should work with Yoda to get the, but everyone knew that Yoda was the guy that was going to get the hero where he needed to go. So that's how you need to be positioned in the marketplace is as the guide, not as the hero. It's all about them and how you're going to get them there. So creating story brand is good. Uh, um, start with why is also very good uh, by Simon Sinek. And those are, t- oh, oh, I'm forgetting probably my, my biggest one, which was influence the psychology of persuasion. I actually started out in the business not being a great salesperson. That was actually my weakest point. And so I leveraged that through doing a lot of JV deals, which I still do a lot of JV deals because obviously creative ca- or creative financing is really, co- excuse me, complicated. Uh, so we JV with people, you know, who find a deal that they think is good for creative finance, or maybe they don't have the money, or maybe they don't have the knowledge or whatever that is. That's how I started. And I started that way because I didn't know how to negotiate. Now negotiating is probably one of my strongest points, but it came from reading and researching and practicing and influence the psychology of persuasion is from a guy, Dr. Robert Cialdini. And it is, it was originally created to help people fight marketing and understand the reasons why you will make a decision so that you can recognize if somebody is uh, doing, then he found out that nobody bought it, but guys like us. And so he created a follow-up called persuasion but it is a phenomenal look at a truly from a psychological standpoint. Why do people decide to do something kind of thing? And there's like six or seven principles, really good books. So that's, that's my, that's my Mount Rushmore books. Awesome. And I love that. I got to check a couple of those out that I have not yet. Our next question is if you had a time machine, knowing what you know now in life and business, if a younger grand camp came up to you and asked you for advice starting out, what advice would you give a younger you today? You know, I think it would be a lot of, I mean, basically what we talked about today, right? Like it's treat your business like a business. Don't focus on, on, on hustle. You know, that's not necessarily something I would have given younger grant necessarily. Cause, uh, uh, but if, you know, in the context of like somebody coming up, it's just have realistic expectations, work your butt off and find ways to leverage your, your relationships in your community. And, uh, and, and just, uh, you know, do right by everybody. One of our core values, one of our strongest number one core value is that, uh, we do the right thing, especially when it's not in our favor. And I encourage everybody to adopt that as a core value. If that, if that resonates with you. And I want you to use that language specifically, because what I say, when I say that everybody hears, we're going to do the right thing always. And that's not what I said. What I said is we're going to do the right thing, especially when it's not in our favor, because if you say, we're always going to do the right thing you get to that really hard decision. And it's like, well, I always do the right thing. This time I'm going to take the money. If it's phrased, we're going to do the right thing, especially when it's not in our favor. The only time you can exhibit that core value is the three or four times in your career where you're faced with the hardest decision. So you have to adhere to that, right? So that would be the advice I would give is like, dude, do business well, take care of the people that are around you. Make sure if you make money, they can make money. If anybody has a hand in you making money, make sure that they make money. Uh, work hard, don't screw people over and do the right thing, especially when it's not in your favor and, and, and always be looking to, uh, answer the next question. Can I do this? Why not make it binary? Why not? Why can't I do this, this? Okay. So how do I fix that? That, well, can I do that? No, why not? Okay. How do I fix that? This, can I do that? You know what I mean? Like work through things and just go out there and actually take action. Learning is nothing. Doing is everything. I love that, man. And uh, now, so wrapping everything up, creativecashflow.com. Talk about what you guys do, the educational side. I know masterminds have been big for me. I know you guys have a mastermind. I know, again, you're a great teacher. People that are overwhelmed with systems and technology and all these different things. Um, just let's let's go deep into what you guys do, how you help people, how do they find you, how do you work with them? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's kind of different levels, right? Like, so I have online videos uh, and and a kind of entry level, like you get the online videos and I do a Q&A every Monday night, 7 p.m. Central until people stop asking questions. I just answer questions about anything, right? So that's kind of the entry side. Then the next two levels uh, are going to be the actual mastermind. And our mastermind is just incredible. I'm so impressed. Like, I'm glad to be in the mastermind. I'm just lucky to be able to say that I, I run it because, you know, guys, like we've got guys in there, like one of the dudes owned a, like a cleaners, like a, like a t-shirt, like clothing cleaner place making uh $10 million a year, or was it 50, 10 or 50? I can't remember. That's a big difference, but a lot, right? Uh, I've got a guy in there that was making $20,000 net a day in the oil industry. Cause he found a niche of like delivering gravel. One guy owned a mortgage brokerage with 110 loan officers, not even counting all the, the, you know, somebody else owns 17 H and R block. So we've got these people that are in this company that, because again, you know, what we want to focus on is this is biz dev. We just have a widget of real estate. Now that's not to say you have to have owned a business to be in here. Cause we've got a lot of people who didn't, I'm just saying we've got a lot of really successful. That is one of the marks of our mastermind is our mastermind is built up of these people, right? This is kind of our avatar for that is they're highly intelligent uh, who've recognized that they want their legacy to be built from seller financing. Typically they've come in doing fewer than 15 deals in real estate. Uh, They're highly successful people, which a lot of times, 80, 90% of the time means that they owned another company that's been successful or, or still own another company. But like one of them is a, she, does business acquisitions for venture capitalists and been shipped over to live in Hong Kong and Korea and stuff like that. Like we had a lot of people that just are successful in life. They're working for somebody else, but they take their, their high performers, right? Uh, they're people who love details and will actually apply those details. And then it's uh, lastly, it's people who are, I don't know if you know the Rogers bell curve, but y'all can research that, but they're early adopters. It's somebody who can sit right here and say, well, wait a minute, there's a problem coming up in a couple of years if I want to fix that problem, I probably need to start now on it, right? So you get in this group of people that's very, you know, we we try to keep it small. We want the we want people who can actually pour into you and have a real relationship, like uh, like Nick. One of the things that we take seriously in ours. So we cap it. We're capping it at at uh, uh, forty creative executive members, but it just basically comes down to we've got a mastermind that happens every quarter. Every week on Thursday, I spend two hours where the first hour of it, I just talk about something high level, something I can't necessarily say on YouTube because I can't trust who's watching that to understand fully how to use it without messing themselves or somebody else over. So we talk about something new and high high uh, uh, impact there. And then we spend the last hour actually analyzing your deals because that's one of the hardest parts about creative financing and doing all this stuff. It's like, you've got a lead. Where are the pockets where the money is hidden? So we analyze that deal live right there. And then if you are in the high end, the creative executives, I actually provide a duplicate of our CRM that we built out. That would be a $150,000 CRM, you know, to get going. Cause it does everything from your creative financing portfolio to your wholesaling to your whatever, and automates a lot of things for you and takes care of marketing and that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I also uh, duplicate our uh, SOPs for you. You get an access to our intranet and our like flow chart of the company and like what each process looks like for acquisition and disposition and private money and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's a huge lucid chart graph. That is what we actually use in our operation that we just give to our students. Cause we, you know, again, our, our whole thing is we want people to get in, in three quarters where they would have been in four years without us. And I want to remove every obstacle that I humanly can between our students and success. And so since we are actively right now buying houses, 
those resources that we're using to do it. We just give those to the people that are in the mastermind. So if you're interested in joining up on that, it's creativecashflow.com slash memberships. Uh, you can look, you'll click a button to apply. It gets a time on my calendar. We just chat for a minute, see if it's a good fit. It's not a good fit for everybody. Uh, but see if it's a good fit. And if it is, we get you in there. And then lastly, if you know, if you're just not ready to spend money on your education or whatever, but you're working on deals and getting deal flow in, like I mentioned earlier, I do JV. So you can do creativecashflow.com slash JV with me, submit your lead. And then somebody from my team will call you within 24 hours and we'll help help you at least get that deal closed and get money into your pocket. So those, those are the ways that I, I like to work with everybody. Man, that covers a lot of ground. I like that. That's awesome, man. So the values there, you know, and I tell everybody, all investors, all people in general have different stress points. My stress point happens to be, you know, programming and, and relearning all these things like Podio. It just gives me a headache trying to figure out how things connect. And you help me a lot with that. So the part that you said about just being able to duplicate your CRM for them is just worth its weight in gold. For people that are not using that yet, if you go and you try and figure out yourself, I mean, I consider myself intelligent and pretty good with computers. And I'm still like, dude, I don't know. I need to get you on my computer. So um, that has a ton of value for me and you have had a ton of value for me. So I, I want to thank you again for giving me not only your time today, but helping me out with some of that other stuff in the past and, you know, having some drinks and talks and just hanging out at some of these masterminds. I definitely value your time. I value your input and I respect you as a friend and an investor. Any following uh, f- closing thoughts today on the A-Game podcast as we let you go and get about your day? Yeah, not really. I just really appreciate. I mean, similarly, you've said a lot of nice things my way. But again, you're 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 uh, the way that you handle yourself and go about and how much you're doing to help other people out genuinely, like behind the scenes, not on the camera. Uh, you know, if those of you who are watching don't understand that about Nick, it, that is his truth. I mean, when the camera's off, this dude wants to help you, right? And so, I just really appreciate that about you. Thank you for having me out here, and and uh, and I just hope that this is able to resonate with somebody and. And I, I appreciate the relationship that we've been able to build and look forward to, to, to more building coming up. So thanks for having me out today. Same here, man. And I appreciate it. Tell Ronnie, I said, what's up. And obviously anybody listening, I'm going to put all the show notes and the links to be able to find you and find your company and be able to move forward and work with you guys from here on out. So without further ado, I'll let you go about your day, man. But I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much, Grant Camp. You definitely bring your A game. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I appreciate it, man. Have Take a great day, guys. Ever wanted to play the drums? Or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real McKenzie's, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught Tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-482-0167. Again, text drummer to 833-482-0167 for your free drum lesson.